Hey, um, welcome to Canterbury Gardens. Uh, if you're visiting and you're wondering who is Shubs, that's me. And if you're wondering, is that his real name? No. Uh, my name is Shabu. I have the great privilege to be one of the pastors here. Um, Shubs is like usual Aussie style. We just give nicknames to people. I've had that nickname for a long time. When I used to play basketball, they used to call me Chubs, but I'm not sure why that was. <laughs> Still a bit bitter about that. Um, Hey, uh, if you're visiting, it's a great joy and privilege to have you here with us. One of the things that we do as a church is we take our time to, through different books of the Bible. Uh, and this morning, we're jumping back into uh, the Gospel of John series that we started last year. Uh, now, if you don't have a physical Bible, we would love for you to take one. Um, they're usually here. But uh, last year, we gave out these little um, Gospel of John journals. Um, they're available again if you would like one. Uh, the reason why we give them out is basically it's got the passage and then it's got like an empty page. So that you can actually circle it, you can write you know, things on it, no, notes and stuff. Uh, that's what it's there for. So it's $10 cash or $8 online, depending on how you want to do that. Okay, that's the promotional stuff. Um, now, Paul mentioned about this idea of us being one church together, and I don't know if you realize this, that we as a church, over the last few years, have deliberately asked for, as one big church family, to travel together. So at the 9am service, if you haven't been to one, I would encourage you to go to it. It goes from 9am to 10am. It's a wonderful, beautiful, reflective service, but they're also walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, if you go to a kids' church um, class right now, uh, most likely, most of the kids' church teachers are also going through the Gospel of John. And then at our 10.30 service, we're doing this series that we're continuing that we started last year. The reason why we do that is because we desire to be one church community as a family traveling together under God's Word. And uh, the reason why we're back into John, I guess, to, is to kind of get you to consider who this Jesus is, whether if you're a skeptic, whether if you're a follower or you're just someone who's weary and apathetic to it all. My prayer is as we consider the truths of John that you will be challenged and stirred. Uh, last year, we, we came to this big statement uh, that we kept on coming back to. Uh, the Gospel of John is written by a follower of Jesus. His name is John. Uh, he's, uh, he wrote John. There's also one, two, three John, and then there's also the book of Revelation, right? He wrote it, and he's a follower. He loves Jesus. And he's writing a true account. Now, he has a specific focus on why he's written it. And we talked about last year, if you flick to John 20, this is what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All the signs that we were unpacking last year that you would have seen, the, the, the water, that's, um, the wine that was changed into... Sorry, let me start again. From water to wine. Thank you. I know what I'm talking about. Jesus did that sign. It was pointing to who he is, that he's bringing a new thing. Not only that, he talked about how he had power over sickness and death talked about how he did the sign of feeding the 5,000. It was a significant moment. It was pointing to an Old Testament picture of God providing for his people. And here is Jesus declaring that he is the bread of life. And you've got those I am statements declaring who he is. And all through that, he's saying that he is God. 
And last year we finished up on that very famous story where Lazarus was uh, raised from death in John 11. And he declares that Jesus declares he is the resurrection and life. Well, it would have been one of the most greatest and most powerful signs, but it's declaring who he is. That he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is equal to God. And he's declaring that to not just the people then and the people who are reading John, but also to us today in 2020. Now, we come up to a season in Jesus' life. If you're using modern-day language, we're going to be spending our time in John 11. You can flick there if you have a Bible. I'd encourage you to do that. John 11, we're going to start in verse 54, and we're going to also cover John 12, and we're going to go up to verse 19. As you're flicking there, this is the moment in Jesus' ministry where things are shifting. They're deliberately going to kind of head towards what he came for, that is to die on a cross. But humanly speaking, this is also one of the most um, uh, mountaintop moments in Jesus' ministry. This is the peak of his ministry. If it was the modern day age, this is where there's lots of followers following after him. I mean, the most amazing sign, he's just raised a dead man to life has happened. News is spreading. Maybe if there were TV cameras, maybe they would have followed him. I don't know. Maybe the Twitter uh, sphere is starting to blow up and people are making all these comments of who he is. But we also know, as Jesus and his popularity goes, and his statements that he makes of who he is, there's an undergroup. They're not very happy about him. Uh, the skeptics, the, the, the religious leaders. These leaders are not happy that people are following Jesus. Because Jesus is making a very clear statement that he is equal to God. That him and the Father are one. That he has always existed. And so, they decide to plan something. And you see that in John 11 verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. So for the Jewish leaders at the time, historically, they're under Roman Empire. This is not a good thing that this man is not only receiving worship from the people, it's stirring a significant amount of um, um, people people following Christ. Everyone's believing. That's the language that they use. And they're fearful because they are the religious leaders. And they're the ones who declares what is right and what is wrong. And now that means, now the authority that they have is going to be lost. This nation who's under Roman occupation, this nation who actually worships their emperor, sorry, Roman Empire. Friends, do you mind if I just pray for us? I'm a little bit all over the place for some reason. Father, I pray for myself right now because this is not about me. And I don't want to be a distraction to my brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, I pray that um, I will not do this in my own strength, but through your power, so that, <laughs> Jesus, you are glorified. 
alone. In your name, amen. Sorry about that. Uh, so in this moment, the, the, the Roman Empire are in charge. They have an emperor that the Romans worship. And so for the Jewish leaders, they're concerned. If people are worshipping this guy called Jesus, it's going to bring a whole lot of a problem for them. And so they hatch a plan. Their plan is to kill Jesus. But see, the thing is, they think they're in control, but they have no idea. They have no clue They're not comprehending the reality, even though throughout all of Old Testament scripture this was pointing to this truth, but they don't realize that Jesus was destined to die. He was destined to die. And they think, well, what do we do about this? And see, even people in their own ranks in the previous passage, you'll see it, actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So they think, well, let's help God out here. Let's speed up. And see in verses 54 to 57, they decide to go after Jesus. They go decide to kill him. And the Jews at the time are looking for someone who has done a miraculous sign. They're after him. He's a miraculous, uh, miraculous miracle worker. But see, Jesus knows that's not what he's there for. All the signs that he's ever done is to point to one reality that who he is. But he also knows he's arrived for a bigger purpose. And friends, what I want us to consider this morning is two things. The king who would die, and secondly, the unlikely king. And so Jesus is in this scene. He's arrived, and and he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And there's this buzz going around in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever asked the question with friends of yours. You ask them, who do you think Jesus is? What, What are kind of the statements they say about Jesus? Often, you know, you might hear, yeah, he's some sort of religious leader. Um, I hear that he's, you know, really good teachings, you know, love others, you know, that kind of stuff, moral kind of um, things. Do you ever hear that Jesus is king? If you bought the Kanye West album, you probably have. Right? Kanye West is like gay fist. It's really good. You should check it out. Um, Now, the language of Jesus being king is unless you're a follower of Jesus, you understand that. For the general world, you don't actually hear it too often. This idea that someone who is king, it's kind of almost archaic, particularly here in Australia maybe. But friends, what we have in front of us, John is writing this. This is a true account. If you are skeptical to who Jesus is, I want you to know that we're in this church. Don't believe this Bible is just a book. We believe it's real. It's alive. And even now, we believe that God is speaking to you. And you have a purpose of being here. And Jesus wants to reveal to you that he is king. This is a true story. But the truth is, this king came to die. This king came to die. In the story that we have, Jesus, his popularity is growing, but he's hiding himself. He knows the time hasn't come yet. But then the time arrives. The time arrives during a significant time in the Jewish calendar called the Passover. You see that in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And now that language of Passover is mentioned again as you can read further. Uh, what the author is trying to do is for the original hearers and even today is to kind of make us go, oh, the Passover, that means something. That's a significant moment. 
the Passover of the Jews in this moment was going to be the last Passover that Jesus would partake of in his ministry here in this world. It's mentioned twice. It's leading up to it. The story of um, what we're about to read where Mary anoints him is just probably a week before the Passover happening. Lots of buzzes going on. Lots of people have arrived into Jerusalem. It's a reminder to those who are listening at the time and a reminder to us today in 2020, someone who was just raised from the dead in the previous chapter has been raised because someone who's about to become the sacrificial lamb. See, John is making a comment to say that Passover is there and right now the sacrificial lamb is preparing himself. He's going to be the deliverer of the people. Now, if you're new to the Christian language, the Passover is a big thing in the Bible. This is where you see God's judgment is poured out, but not only that, God's provision and salvation is shown. And you read that in the story of the world-famous story of Moses, where God sends judgment against the people of Israel, against the false gods, against Pharaoh. Actually, that judgment's for all of them. Now, if you want to be escaping the wrath of God, for him to pass over you, something had to give its life. An animal, a lamb. And God says, you put the blood on your posts, and I will pass over you. And that's what's going on here. Passover means it's a picture of God's salvation. It's a picture of God bringing both judgment, but also God bringing salvation at the same time. That God provides it. This is where you get the theological term of propitiation. But God's wrath is turned aside. This is the purpose of the Passover. And here we have people, as they prepare for this meal, because it's a significant meal, they're purifying themselves to be part of this meal. But they don't realize there's also someone else preparing himself. That Jesus Christ is preparing himself to die. The one who's going to be the ultimate lamb, the one that the Passover was shadowing, shadowing and pointing towards, is going to do what he's been called to do. The king would die. And you have in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, would you look with me here? It's another meal. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner from, for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Here is another meal that Jesus is at, and it's a significant meal. Uh, it's, it's depicted again in the Gospel of Luke, but here we have two people. There's Martha, she's serving, and you can read about that whole story in the Gospel of Luke. And you have Mary sitting at Jesus' feet again. 
But here, at this meal, there's a central figure. Someone is pretty significant. Right there is a guy called Lazarus. Now, I don't know about you, this is when if you've grown up in church culture and the church world, you kind of go, oh yeah, Lazarus is at a meal. Friends, the previous chapter, he was dead. Like, not alive, like to the point that his body was going to be stinking. That's just, it's a pretty powerful statement. If you can just imagine for a moment, having a meal, this guy who was dead. But see, there's something other significant going on. And I just want to make a note here. If you are skeptical to all this stuff, we as Christians believe this actually happened. This is not made up. But see, the focus, as much as the significant Lazarus is sitting there reclining with Jesus, having a meal, there's something else more significant happening. There sits the Passover lamb himself, Jesus Christ. The one who's about to experience something most powerful and amazing. The the one is about to experience something that all of history has been waiting for. All of history has been preparing for this. That is to prepare him for his death. Mary, and if you read the Gospels, Mary is this amazing character. really started to like her. She's constantly at the feet of Jesus. That's where you often find her. And she's not listening, but she does something absolutely outrageous. She takes... Uh, what's probably most likely some sort of aromatic oil, and she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' feet. This is where if you had sort of the language myrrh, that's what you would use. Uh, Most likely it was a very... John's going to the detail of it to say, if you're listening to it for the first time, this is a popular brand. This is a big brand. This is a big deal. It's very expensive. Most likely it was made by, uh, from a plant in India. Um... I'm Indian, by the way, if you're wondering. But the idea is this powerful aroma. It's extremely expensive. It most probably cost a year's wage for the average laborer. John is being very deliberate about the detail about this. It's like saying she didn't just go off and buy some no-name brand from Chemist Warehouse and pour it on Jesus' feet. Okay? This is really expensive stuff. It's a powerful picture. I think in our day and age, we might lose the weight of it. But here is Mary. She's just experienced the death of her brother. She's pouring ointment over Jesus' feet. She uses her own hair to wipe his feet. See, for the ancient Near East in that time and that culture, it was a symbol of extravagant devotion, extravagant sacrifice and worship. And John makes this statement. I don't know if you saw that in the verses that the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. I remember going to the Middle East in Dubai and you go into one of the perfume stores that they have brands there that we don't have here uh, because it's made from sort of Arabic kind of history. It's powerful smell. If you smell someone wearing it, it feels like it's clung on to you for the rest of the day, especially if you've given them a hug. This is the imagery here. But I want you to imagine, this is John's trying to make a statement. It's a beautiful picture. Earlier in this house, the stench of death was very clearly there. And now, you have this beautiful picture. The one who's the resurrection of life has brought this beautiful smell of life into this house. And here is Mary. On her 
on the floor, wiping Jesus' feet, the sweet aroma overpowering him the smell of the food into that whole house. And the disciple who is Judas, who should hopefully know something a little bit, he decides to pipe up. He says, Jesus, ah, look, come on, what is this woman doing? She could have sold this really expensive perfume for a really good price. I mean, she could have jumped on Amazon, maybe she could have put up an Etsy shop, or maybe she could have gone on a Facebook marketplace and got a really good price for it. And you know, the money that she makes out of it, she could actually give it to the poor. It sounds so religious, sounds so holy. But John wants to make it clear why Judas has done it. And you see that in the passage. John has no care or concern for the poor. This is the man who takes care of the money bag for the ministry of Jesus. But at the same time, Judas has been helping himself to the money bag. John describes him as a thief, but the better way to put it is probably he's an embezzler. He's a pilferer. And in the New Testament, this language is the same language that's transferred to false teachers. This is someone who does not care to instruct men, but rather they want to use that to abuse them for their own gain. Judas is looking all spiritual, but at the end of the day, he has no concern for her. He doesn't even realize the act of it. He's thinking about himself. And I love Jesus' response. (laughs) Jesus engages with Judas, and he actually comes to defend Mary. He turns around and says to Mary, leave her alone. It's a contrasting picture for us. And you see this constantly in the Gospel of John. Two kind of contrasts happening always. And here is Judas thinking of himself. His worship ultimately is not about Jesus. It's about what he wants, what he desires. That is, his focus is the money. On Mary. In the previous chapter, she declares, this is the Son of God, the Messiah, She's just experienced and seen the life giver who's raised her dead brother to life. And I don't think she fully understood what was going on at that time, in that moment, in her act. Jesus does. And he states why this perfume has been anointed on his feet. It's actually preparing him for death. Now, whether if this embalming kind of uh, oil would have been later used if um, they had time to do that for Jesus' body, either way, the purpose is this, that Jesus is making clear that Mary is preparing him for his impending death. And it's a play on words here where John's saying that the, the perfume and the fragrance in a house that's been filled with death that has brought now a fragrance of life, that Jesus' death, will bring life, it will be a sweet aroma to anyone who puts their faith in him. And this is the picture that's given in front of us. Now friends, I know about you, but this is the kind of stuff, if you've grown up in the church, particularly when you read this kind of stuff, we roll our eyes at Judas. Oh, there we go, Judas again. But friends, be very careful. John's put it there to grab our attention. See, on one hand you have Mary, she's displaying true worship, and adoring Jesus to the point that she's willing to let go of something that's really expensive. Now, I don't think she fully understood, I think. 
But what she's showing here is that she's encountered Jesus Christ, the resurrection and life. He's become master to her. That's why he's at, her, at, his, that, at his feet. And what she's saying is everything that I have is his now. I don't own anything. It all belongs to him. In contrast, you have Judas, who is displaying self-righteous piety, being quite religious, declaring this woman is wasting it. But in his own blindness, he's so blind to his own sin of rejecting the Messiah. He cannot see past the selfish reality. What she's doing is actually joining in God's cosmic plan. And he shakes his head. The reality is his actions actually stink because it's a worship that's not centered around Christ. It's centered around him. See, when Jesus says the statement that you will always have the poor, it's not like some lack of statement that Jesus is saying. Right? Jesus cares for the poor. It's to kind of point out this contrast. Jesus is saying, this side of heaven... Because of sin, because of death, because of brokenness, because of people like Judas who steal from people, you will always have the poor. And in this context here, Jesus is unlike me, the one who will go to the cross, pointing to his death that is to come. He's saying to Judas, listen, you don't get this. This woman is doing a good thing both for you, Judas, and for the poor. Because I am going to die for the sins of the world. See, our view of Jesus and who he is and what he's he's doing and what he's done as king will really shape our view of worship. Our view of Jesus will shape our worship. See, here in this moment, this woman is worshipping the resurrection and the life. And friends, if you don't know who Jesus is, I want you to know, Jesus is not some religious leader sitting there asking his devotees to stroke his ego. He doesn't need it. What Jesus is saying that he is the lamb, the one who will be sacrificed for you and for me. But to truly understand who he is, to really understand that you and I can't actually save ourselves. Do you know we have two contrasts? You have one guy stealing money and proclaiming being all self-righteous. You have a woman who's actually being very, very beautiful, giving what she has, expensive. They both need saving. They both need a saviour to die for them. And this means in our context, did you know just being good will not save you? Did you know that if you are someone who recycles, you will not be saved? In our culture. Did you know that going to soup kitchens and serving the poor will not save you? Even though it's a wonderful thing to do. Do you know that donating to the horrible bushfires will not save you? Even though it's a wonderful thing to do. It's not till you and I have the posture like Mary, sitting and worshipping at the feet of Jesus, not demanding, not declaring what the rules are, but reminded again that there was one because of your rebellion and my rebellion who wanted to be our own God and King who took our place, the one who was willing to die. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know Jesus is not interested in any kind of self-righteous piety. 
if you want to understand what worship is, and in our modern day, particularly here in this world, worship has been taken over to be about singing. It's not. That's not what true worship is. It's when you and I are captured by what Jesus has done, who he is, that it stirs an affection in us to be extravagantly displaying the love of Christ. And here in this context, this is what we see in Mary. This is the question to ask all of us. How is the worship of our King? How is the worship of our King? And to understand that, it's actually here in verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 9 to 19. There's this powerful picture given to us. The large crowd here, and they want to um, proclaiming that Lazarus is risen. The chief priests in verse 10 are planning to kill Lazarus. Jesus enters the town in chapter 12, uh, sorry, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things and had been written about him, had been done to him. The crowd had been with him, and he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you gain nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In this moment, I want you to consider this scene. It's a powerful scene. And the closest thing I can say, and because of time, I'm just going to quickly jump into this. I want you to imagine for a moment you hear that the Prime Minister of Australia is going to come to the church. Some of you will be really excited about that. Some of you, not really sure. But I want you to imagine as you stand down there in the driveway, you're waiting and you're wanting to see the Prime Minister drive up. And you're waiting for that chauffeur-driven car. And all of a sudden you watch up the driveway. And here comes the Prime Minister on one of those Australia Post bikes. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But here in this picture, we have this powerful picture of who Jesus is. The verses that I quote is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's an Old Testament passage. John wants to make it very clear. This is Jesus not arriving as the warrior king. This is Jesus arriving as the gentle king. He's proclaiming that he's bringing peace to the nations. This is the one who will bring peace, not through some sort of political campaign, but through his death. This is to proclaim to them, this is what God has always planned. And now this king doesn't come on a horse, but as a donkey. A donkey that God had prophesied about. And you read that in the other Gospels. It's a great, powerful picture of a humble king. The king who's the unlikely king. And here we have people who are not happy. And they want to declare that they want to kill this gentle king. But friends, what we have in front of us is a wonderful picture that we are in need of a gentle king. The one who is the gentle king who desires for us to bring true worship, not by religious piety, but by sitting at his feet and accepting who he is and what he has done. The one who becomes the Passover lamb. Jesus himself bought life, but he would die to show that we need true life in him. Jesus is the one who is willing to humble himself 
to ride a donkey into town as God had prophesied. And friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I want you to know that you will not find true peace till you come to the feet of this king, who is the unlikely king, the king who is willing to die for you. Being good will not save you. Giving to the poor will not save you. And Christian friends, it's a reminder to you and I, we are still in need of being reminders of who Jesus is and what he's done. I don't know about you, this is the kind of passage that we become so familiar with and we forget. We forget that this, this, this feat that this woman poured the wonderful perfume on his feet would eventually become nail-pierced on that cross so that you and I can experience the beautiful aroma of grace, not because of what we do, but because of what, we, what he has done. So friends, would you come as we explore the Gospel of Jonah over the next few weeks? Would you come and not actually bring your own agenda and just sit at his feet and explore who he is and what he has done? This is what we've been called to. The one who is the king who would die. The one who is the unlikely king. So friends, this morning, I have a question for you. Why do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Jesus to just get things from him? Or do you worship Jesus because of what he has done? It's two very different things. And finally, this king will come again, friends. And you know when he comes? The same guy who wrote about this king who rode a colt writes in Revelation 19 that this king would return. And he describes him as the king on a white horse. It's a powerful image of a king who's the warrior, the king who's returning, the king who's returning for those who love him the king who will return to judge all. So the question I have for you, is he the king of your life now? Because when he returns, there's no second chance, friends. So if you don't know him, give your life to him in faith. If you do know him, keep worshipping at his feet. Be soaked in his grace and let it be the sweet aroma in your life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you have done. I thank you that you're the king who is willing to die. I thank you that you've gone before us. Thank you for the promise that you're coming again. Whether saint or sinner, help us to be captured by who you are in every aspect of our lives. We pray this in your name.